This is the Book of Mormon Digging Deeper. I'm your host, Mark Swint. Here's a fun fact. Gold is very heavy. Did you know that one cubic foot of gold, that would be 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches, weighs 1,206 pounds or 17,704 troy ounces. And just for fun, at $2,030 per troy ounce, the price of gold now, that cubic foot of gold is worth just under $36 million. I watched the very entertaining movie, The Italian Job, starring Mark Wahlberg and Charlie Theron and uh, Edward Norton, and it was a great movie, very well done, except for the part where they're loading stacks of gold bars into the backs of Mini Coopers. Now, just estimating here, but it looked like they each had at least five or six cubic feet which would have been somewhere around 6,000 pounds or three tons. Now, I think Mini Coopers are cool little cars, but I doubt they could carry three tons and careen through the streets of Venice as the movie showed. To be fair, the script addressed the weight issue and told us that the cars were modified to carry the heavy load, but still, I think they overdid it just a little bit. Now, as I said, gold is very heavy. By comparison... A cubic foot of aluminum weighs just 106 pounds. A cubic foot of iron should be very heavy, and it is. It weighs 491 pounds, but still only one-third the weight of gold by volume. And even lead only comes in at 709 pounds, or just 58% of the weight of gold. And the weight of gold is an issue in this discussion today. For centuries, people studied and practiced the art of alchemy, which included an effort to learn the art of turning lead into gold. On the periodic table, they were very closely related. Of course, their efforts were always futile, but there were always a number of charlatans and conmen who nevertheless fooled the public into thinking they could turn lead into gold. Even Sir Isaac Newton spent a great deal of his time trying to create gold from lead. Chemically, they're very close, but messing with the atomic nuclei, which is what you would have to do to add protons to the nucleus, that's very difficult. And in those days, people didn't even know about the nucleus. Anyway, you get the point. So, it's no surprise that criticism should arise concerning the story of the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. Initially, Criticism of the book was based on its content and the fabulous stories contained within. And we have covered much of that criticism in past episodes, especially early on when the Book of Mormon was the only book to claim an Egyptian origin for some of the events and civilizations in Central America. However, over the last almost 200 years now, 
an increasingly impressive body of archaeological and anthropological evidence has come out to lend ever more support to its original claims. Because of this, vocal criticism of the content of the Book of Mormon has largely died down. The things spoken of in the book are proving to be true and authentic. So where then to turn one's criticism, or dare I say hatred, of and for the book to be placed? Well, here it turns out that the very existence of the golden plates themselves is a good place to start. So first, let's hear Joseph's description of them. As recorded in the History of the Church, Volume 4, .537, Joseph Smith described the plates thus. He says, These records were engraven on plates which had the appearance of gold. Each plate was six inches wide and eight inches long, and not quite so thick as common tin. They were filled with engravings in Egyptian characters and bound together in a volume as the leaves of a book, with three rings running through the whole. The volume was something near six inches in thickness, a part of which was sealed. The characters on the unsealed part were small and beautifully engraved, and the whole book exhibited many marks of antiquity in its construction and much skill in the art of engraving. The description and those dimensions given would put the plates at approximately 288 cubic inches or about 0.167 cubic feet. According to the calculations we just did a moment ago, that should put the weight of those plates at just over 200 pounds if they were pure gold. And that, critics argue, would have made it impossible for Joseph to carry the plates home while evading the men who were lying in wait to take them from him. Oddly, a knowledge of or belief in the existence of the plates was never an issue in Joseph's day. It seems many people, both friendly and nefarious, were well aware of their existence, and a number of schemes were devised to get them from the prophet. If I may, let me share with you some of the intrigue of that time. Andrew Hedges, assistant church historian and professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, gives us the details in his essay, Take Heed Continually, Protecting the Plates. This is a bit lengthy, so please be patient with me. I think you will find this very interesting. He says, speaking of a warning given by Moroni himself to Joseph Smith in the beginning, the angel of the Lord says that we must be careful not to proclaim these things or to mention them abroad, for we do not any of us know the weakness of the world, which is so sinful, and that when we get the plates, they will want to kill us for the sake of the gold, if they know we have them. This warning of Moroni's was not an idle threat. Even before Joseph Smith received the plates four years later, Various people were plotting how they might obtain them, and several attempts were made to wrest them from the prophet's care once they were in his possession. By the 22nd of September, 1827, several people with wrong intentions knew of the plate's existence, knew roughly of their whereabouts, and knew that the time was approaching for Joseph Smith to obtain them. Joseph, however, was apprised of those people's knowledge and their determination to obtain the record for themselves and took precautions against such an event. According to his mother's history, 
Joseph came to her about midnight on the 21st of September, 1827, and asked her if she had a chest with a lock and key. When she answered she did not, he reassured her that all would be well. He and Emma then left the house for the Hill Camorra with Joseph Knight's horse and wagon, having told no one that they were going. No account exists detailing everything that transpired that night at the Hill Camorra, but from Joseph Smith's own record, we know that Moroni met Joseph there and delivered the plates with the warning, quote, that I should be responsible for them, and that if I should let them go carelessly or through any neglect of mine, I should be cut off, but that if I would use all my endeavors to preserve them, they should be protected. The prophet's mother, no doubt getting her information from Joseph, recorded Moroni's words in some greater detail. She says this, Now you have got the record into your own hands, and you are but a man. Therefore, you will have to be watchful and faithful to your trust or you will be overpowered by wicked men, for they will lay every plan and scheme that is possible to get them away from you, and if you do not take heed continually, they will succeed. While they were in my hands, I could keep them, and no man had power to take them away, but now I give them up to you. Beware and look well to your ways, and you shall have power to retain them until the time for them to be translated. After receiving the plates at the hill, the prophet hid them nearby in a hollow birch log whose tough bark had resisted the forces of decay better than the wood itself. Cutting a hole in the bark and peeling it back, he placed the plates in the cavity of the log thus exposed, then replaced the bark and laid across the log in several places some old stuff that happened to be lying near, in order to conceal, as much as possible, the place in which they were deposited. And this was apparently done in the absence of Emma, who presumably was waiting in the wagon nearby. Upon his return home, the prophet's mother told Joseph to go to a cabinet maker she knew and ask him to make a chest in which Joseph could hide the plates when he brought them in from the woods. Concerned about how he would pay the cabinet maker, Joseph accepted employment the next day, 23rd of September, to build a wall in the well of a widow living in Macedon. Although the job would require Joseph to stay in Macedon for several days, he evidently felt secure enough about the plates in the log to leave them there for the time being. Shortly after the prophet left for Macedon, Joseph Sr. learned of 10 or 12 men who, under the direction of Willard Chase, a Methodist leader in the neighborhood, and Samuel Lawrence, had sent 60 miles for a conjurer to help them find the plates. The following morning, Joseph Sr. went to Samuel Lawrence's home, where he found the men devising many plans and schemes to find, quote, Joe Smith's gold Bible, as they termed it. Sitting down near the door and pretending to read a paper, Joseph Sr. overheard Lawrence's wife caution the men to speak more quietly, at which the conjurer bawled out at the top of his voice, I am not afraid of anybody. We will have the plates in spite of Joe Smith and all the devils in hell. Satisfied that he'd heard enough, Joseph Sr. left. When he arrived home, he asked Emma if she knew where the plates were. She responded that she did not. Joseph Sr. then reported what had occurred at the Lawrence home, and Emma 
offered to ride to Macedon and tell her husband of the men and the conjurer, to which Joseph Sr. consented. Meeting her husband at the widow's well, Emma related everything to him, to which the prophet responded, according to his mother, that the record was perfectly safe for the present. Joseph, nevertheless, accompanied his wife home to the Smith farm, where he made preparations to immediately retrieve the plates from the log. After reassuring his father, who was pacing back and forth by this time, that all was well, Joseph asked Hiram to have a chest with a good lock ready by the time he arrived home with the plates. The prophet Joseph Smith apparently went to retrieve the plates immediately after arranging for the chest with Hiram. Considering all that had already transpired that day, it must have been well after noon by the time Joseph removed the plates from their hiding place in the log. And once they were out of the log, Joseph wrapped them in his linen frock and started for home along the Canandaigua Road, the record tucked under his arm. Leaving the road after a short distance for the safety of the woods, he eventually came to a large windfall where several trees had blown down. His mother wrote, quote, As he jumped over a log, a man sprang up from behind and gave him a heavy blow with a gun. Joseph turned around and knocked him to the ground and then ran at the top of his speed. About half a mile further, he was attacked again in precisely the same way. He soon brought this one down also and ran on again, but before he got home, he was costed the third time with a severe stroke with a gun. Joseph struck this third and final attacker with such force that he dislocated his own thumb, but he continued running, being closely pursued until he came near his father's home, at which time his assailants, quote, for fear of being detected, broke off the chase. Reaching a fence corner, he threw himself down to recover his breath, and then arose and continued running until he reached the house. His mother and sister Catherine were there when he came in. He entered the house running, they said, the plates clasped to his side with his left hand and arm, his right hand badly bruised from knocking down at least three men who had leaped at him from behind bushes or fences as he ran. Panting for breath, the prophet reportedly allowed Catherine to take the plates from him. I think this is a good testimony of the reality of the plates. Had Joseph Smith just made up the story of the golden plates, I don't believe so many men would have schemed so tenaciously to get them. Apparently, there was no doubt among the townsfolk that Joseph did have some sort of plates with him. And if his story was fake, why would he have even pretended to have the plates in the first place? It seems quite a lot of effort was expended on securing and protecting them, and the Smiths never had enough money for anything extra, so the commissioning of a carpenter to fabricate a wooden box would surely have seemed unnecessary. This account, if true, as harrowing as it is, makes it clear that all these actions would have been impossible to undertake if the plates had weighed 200 pounds. So, is the story fake? Or is there some other explanation? Well, perhaps the plates were not pure gold. After all, no one said they were. A careful examination of early descriptions of the plates is revealing. 
Looking again at Joseph's own description of the plates, which we had just read from the history of the church, he said, These records were engraven on plates which had the appearance of gold. He did not say they were gold. Other descriptions call them the golden plates. Now, golden is an adjective, a descriptor. Gold, as in plates of gold, on the other hand, is a noun. Gold is a thing. Golden is a description. And nowhere in the Book of Mormon are they called gold plates. The only scriptures to talk about plates of gold is in Mosiah chapter 8 and also Mosiah chapter 23, I think it is, the same verse, basically, speaking of the 24 gold plates that Limhi's people found while searching for the lost city of Zarahemla. Those plates were, in fact, pure gold, the scripture says, and for a testimony that the things that they had said were true, they have brought 24 plates which are filled with engravings, and they are of pure gold. By contrast, the plates Joseph had were always described as golden plates or appearing as gold. But the claim never was made that the plates were of pure gold. Joseph's preface and official statement in the first edition of the Book of Mormon and a testimonial written by a group of eight witnesses described the plates as having an appearance of gold. The Book of Mormon authors simply said they engraved their writings on plates. In their descriptions, Joseph and the witnesses emphasized the antiquity of the plates and the curious engravings, but it was the golden sheen of the plates that captivated the popular imagination. Further testimony supports the notion that the plates were not made of pure gold, because numerous witnesses described them as weighing much less than comparable gold plates would weigh. First of all, the Apostle John A. Widso agrees with me. He suggested that if the gold were pure, the plates would weigh 200 pounds, which would be a heavy weight for a man to carry, even though he were of the athletic type of Joseph Smith. William, Joseph's brother, who had lifted the plates, thought they weighed about 60 pounds, according to the best of my judgment, he says. Others who lifted the plates while they were wrapped in cloth or enclosed in a box thought that they weighed about 60 pounds. Martin Harris said that he hefted the plates many times and should think they weighed 40 or 50 pounds. According to Smith's one-time friend Willard Chase, Smith told him in 1827 that the plates weighed between 40 and 60 pounds, most likely the latter. And Joseph's father, Joseph Smith Sr., reportedly weighed them and said in 1830 that they weighed 30 pounds, though that was the most conservative estimate but it still is clear that everyone with knowledge of the plates generally agreed that they did not weigh 200 pounds and therefore were certainly not pure gold. We have the statement from Joseph's own brother William who said that he felt the plates inside a pillowcase in 1827. He said in 1884 that he understood the plates to be a mixture of gold and copper much heavier than stone, and very much heavier than wood, he said. Josiah Stoll testified that he inadvertently caught a glimpse of a corner of the plates, making him the only witness to see the plates by accident, 
and he said it resembled a stone of a greenish cast. Late in life, Martin Harris stated that the rings holding the plates together were made of silver, and he said the plates themselves, based on their heft of 40 or 50 pounds, were lead or gold. In 1831, a Palmyra newspaper quoted David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses, as having that the plates were a whitish-yellow color with three small rings of the same metal. And though the descriptions do vary somewhat, it is clear that no one involved thought the plates were composed of pure gold. So what were they made of? Well, first of all, we have to talk about just what plates we're talking about. There are a number of plates spoken about in the Book of Mormon. Of course, there are the brass plates of Laban that the boys returned to Jerusalem to claim. And there are the large plates of Nephi that were made about 10 years after they left, and the small plates of Nephi that were made about 40 years after they left Jerusalem. There are also the 24 gold plates that contained the record of the Jaredites. And then, of course, also the plates which Mormon used to record his abridgment of the large plates. There are also many other records, as mentioned in the book Words of Mormon in the Book of Mormon. The plates that Joseph Smith received from Moroni were composed of three things. The top plate was the title page written by the hand of Moroni. Next were the small plates of Nephi, which Mormon found as he finished his original abridgment, and then, of course, the plates of Mormon upon which he made his record. You can imagine a stack of plates sitting on the left side of three rings which held them together. So the stack has on top the title page, under that were the small plates of Nephi, and under them were the plates of Mormon, including the sealed two-thirds which is yet to come forth. While we do not have a specific description of the plates of Mormon, we can assume that they were fabricated in similar size and fashion to the plates of Nephi, which we do have a description of, and for that we can turn first to the source document itself the Book of Mormon. And in 1 Nephi 18, the last verse reads, And it came to pass that we did find upon the land of promise, as we journeyed in the wilderness, that there were beasts in the forests of every kind, both the cow and the ox, and the ass and the horse, and the goat, and the wild goat, and all manner of wild animals, which were for the use of men. And we did find all manner of ore, both of gold, and of silver, and of copper. Now this verse says they did find all manner of ore, which would indicate more than just gold and silver and copper, and yet those are the only three elements that are mentioned by name. Now let me just take a moment and remind you of an episode way back at the beginning of this podcast. That was episode number four, The Difference One Word Makes. In that episode, I showed how a chapter break from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 2 gave the misleading indication that the thought expressed at the beginning of chapter 2 was a new, fresh thought, when in fact it was merely the continuation of the promises made in chapter 1. Well, here in chapter 18 of 1 Nephi, I think we have the same thing going on. Parley P. Pratt was the one who divided the book into chapters, and I think 1 Nephi 18, the last part of that, and at least the beginning of 1 Nephi 19, should be one chapter. Because 1 Nephi 19 verse 1 starts by saying, 
and it came to pass that the Lord commanded me, wherefore I did make plates of ore, that I might engraven upon them the record of my people. And upon the plates which I made, I did engraven the record of my father, and also our journeyings in the wilderness, and the prophecies of my father, and also many of mine own prophecies have I engraven upon them. Now, if we read the last verse of 1 Nephi 18 and the first verse of Nephi 19 together, we get this. And we did find all manner of ore, both of gold and of silver and of copper. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded me, wherefore I did make plates of ore that I might engrave it upon them the record of my people. See the connection there? In this continuous thought, Nephi says, I did find ore of gold and silver and copper, and the Lord commanded me that I should make of that ore plates upon which I could record the prophecies of my father. Now, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. Do you? Well, is there any justification to think that the plates might have been made of gold and silver and copper? In Joseph Smith's time, probably not. But my, how times have changed. You may recall that originally people mocked the very fact that Joseph claimed the book had been written on metal or metal plates at all. No one had ever heard of such a thing. And then archaeologists began to find metal plates. One of the first and the oldest is probably the Byblos syllabic inscriptions dated from around the 18th century BC from Byblos on the Phoenician coast. Interestingly, they are now considered Semitic bronze plates written in Reformed Egyptian. These plates were discovered by a man named Maurice Dunand between 1928 and 1832. Walter Burkert did a study of the dependence of Greek civilization to the ancient Near East and said this, The reference to bronze plates as a term of ancient sacral laws would point back to the 7th or 6th century B.C., as the period in which the terminology and the practice of writing on bronze plates was transmitted from the Phoenicians to the Greeks. Interesting to note here that this is precisely the time of the beginning of the Book of Mormon record, and it is completely fair and reasonable to assume that as a novel record-keeping device, plates would have been the answer Nephi needed to make and keep his record. Besides, Nephi had already seen metal plates when he retrieved the brass plates of Laban. And in fact, Burkert agrees with me. He says this is precisely the time when the Book of Mormon claims that there existed similar bronze plates which contained the ancient laws of the Hebrews, the close cultural cousins of the Phoenicians. The brass plates of Laban contained the Torah, or the Old Testament as far as it had been written, which was up through Isaiah, but not including Jeremiah, who was the current living prophet at the time. And an interesting aside here, also from Burkert, he said this, Joseph Smith wrote that the title page of the Book of Mormon is a literal translation taken from the very last leaf on the left-hand side of the collection or book of plates, which contained the record which was translated. In claiming this, which was and still is, completely opposite from the way books are printed in the Western culture, Joseph was actually giving legitimacy to the book by having it follow the ancient practice of subscriptio, which connects the layout of later Greek books with the cuneiform practice, i.e. the indication of the name of the writer slash author and the title of the book 
right at the end after the last line of text. Anyway, back to the primary subject. Today, there are literally thousands of examples of metal plates with inscriptions and writing on them, not only in the Near East, but also in Mesoamerica. Too many to mention, in fact. And what do you suppose those plates are made of? Well, you see, one of the problems with pure gold is that it is very soft and malleable. Thin plates of gold would have been difficult to write on and to preserve without bending or deforming. So it would have only made sense that some sort of alloy metal would be added to do the trick. The problem is that most metal will corrode over time. This includes all the common metals, copper, silver, tin, lead, iron, etc. Gold, however, does not corrode, not over a hundred years, not over a thousand years. It seems the answer might be to alloy gold with a sturdier metal. And here we can thank the Spaniards, and in fact, the Spanish conquistadors who first encountered an alloy of gold and copper that they called Tumbaga. In 1992, approximately 200 silver Tumbaga bars were recovered in wreckage off Grand Bahama Island. They were composed mainly of silver, copper, and gold plundered by the Spaniards during the conquest of Cortez and hastily melted into bars of Tumbaga for transport back across the Atlantic. Such bars were typically melted back into the constituent metals in Spain. In its raw form, this Tumbaga did not particularly look like gold, but it had a unique quality. It turns out that Tumbaga can be treated with a simple acid like citric acid, lemon juice, if you will, to dissolve the copper off the surface. What remains is a shiny layer of nearly pure gold on top of a harder, more durable copper-gold alloy sheet. There's a name for this process. It's called depletion gilding. And in my research, I found that Tumbaga could be made of varying proportions of copper and gold or copper and gold and silver. But a good mix was approximately 80% copper, 15% silver, and 5% gold. Now, if I draw you back to the beginning of this episode, remember I said that some early criticism was about the impracticality of having pure gold plates because they would have weighed 200 pounds? And remember that I said that early witnesses made guesses as to the weights of the plates that placed that number anywhere between 40 and 60 pounds? Well, researchers who have studied this have concluded that a set of plates like the Book of Mormon, if made of this same Tumbaga, with the 80, 15, 5% uh, proportions, would weigh roughly 55 pounds, in remarkable agreement with what Joseph Smith claimed nearly 200 years ago. He did not know about Tumbaga, nor much, if anything, about Spanish conquistadors. All he knew was that he had a book of plates that were engraven on plates which had the appearance of gold. Being that Tumbaga seems to have been rather ubiquitous throughout the whole early history of Central America, I think it is perfectly reasonable to assume that the plates of Mormon would be composed of the same thing, and in the same manner as the plates of Nephi, both the large and the small. I find it amazing that like so many other things in and about the Book of Mormon, here again we find an obscure issue 
in this case, the weight and composition of the plates. And once again, we find that if we look deeply enough, there really is no issue at all. Joseph always seemed to tell the truth about what he was doing and what he had seen, without exaggeration. He never embellished. And as a result, after the passage of many years, the things he said which might have been confusing at the time are proving to be accurate. He must have known that if he lied, that lie would one day be uncovered. Instead, he bore this testimony. I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew God knew it, and I could not deny it. It seems he lived his whole life following this ethic. He never tried to explain away things that were hard to understand. He never shied away from any assignment the Lord gave him. He was true to his word and to his God, and we are the richer for it. I am so grateful for Joseph Smith and the truths he restored to the world. I am grateful for the fullness of the gospel he ushered back into the world, and I will try to do my best to spread his message as far and wide as I can. If you would like to read further on this subject, which is very interesting, I think, may I suggest the following resources. The Book of Mormon and Other Hidden Books, Out of Darkness into Light by John A. Tvednes, that's T-V-E-D-T-N-E-S, Doubled Sealed Witnessed Documents from the Ancient World to the Book of Mormon by John W. Welsh, Ancient Burials of Metal Documents in Stone Boxes by H. Curtis Wright, and Ancient Writings on Metal Plates, Archaeological Findings Support Mormon Claims by Paul R. Chessman. I hope you enjoy them. I'm Mark Swint. Thank you for listening.